I don't know how they delivered the gas, but he was hit in the face with whatever the delivery unit was. He swallowed a, quite a lot, blinded him. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. Adversity has an effect of bonding people together. Tested our metal as a team. They held that man virtually prisoner. Terrible, terrible injustice. Riding out a typhoon in a four and a half thousand ton destroyer. We really feared for our lives. So we got back and we did a march, and I guess that's the memory you hold was all these people booing and hissing as you went did the march. Stations I went to that turret. War itself is horrific. It's a horror story. It should never be dressed up as if it's something glorious. Welcome to Life on the Sea, a special spin-off miniseries of Life on the Line podcast. This miniseries profiles nine veterans of the Royal Australian Navy who served in either the Korean War or the Vietnam War. Beginnings covers the early days of our seven Vietnam veterans and how they found their way from shore to sea. Our first veteran for this episode is Jim Dixon. So, Jim, when and where were you born? I was born in Lilydale, Victoria, on Valentine's Day, 1936. Nice, memorable and romantic. <laughs> yes, sort of. Do you have much memory of World War II growing up? Yes, I certainly do. I, mean, I was a, a toddler and uh, only nine when the war finished, but I have very clear memories of certain aspects of it, probably accentuated by the fact that I had four uncles uh, in the services during the war. What experiences did they have? One was captured in Crete, in the fall of Crete, spent the next four years as a POW in Germany. Uh, one was successful and saw the war through in the army. Third one was killed in Tarakan in immediately after VE Day in 1945. The fourth one was in the Navy. He had been a 13-year-old cadet in the Navy, uh, joined in 1919, and he I had various postings, but a good time at sea in World War Two. The one in Tarakan is very tragic. By then, we were just almost wasting lives. So some of those operations, historians argue, do not need to have been conducted the way they were. We're just That's throwing absolutely them true, and that uh, that came out in um, in a book I recently read, and uh, it just added to the tragedy of, of that uncle's loss. Did you have any family involved in World War One? My own father was involved in World War One in the UK. He was a third-year medical student at Edinburgh University in 1916 when the med students were sent to the Somme to help with the casualty situation there. He was there for some time and was adversely and very seriously affected by his experiences there. He came back and life was... That was before he married, obviously, and... Uh, but he could never go back to medicine. He had many years in hospital after that. And then he was married and I and my sisters were born between a period when he came out of hospital in 1925 and when he went in again out here in Australia in 1940. Did he ever talk about it? No, he didn't. He was very, uh, uh, because of his mental condition, we children were never encouraged to talk to him about it. One of those taboo subjects you kept away from it. When did he come out of hospital the second time? Effectively, in 1948. He lived on for a bit over 
20 years beyond that, but uh, he was a guinea pig for leucotomy here in Australia and uh, it wasn't very effective. He had a, a very miserable life. I didn't have the experience of having a father effectively while I was growing up. When you reach your teenage years, World War II is in the past. What are you looking towards being when you grow up? Do you have any inclination of where you might go? I don't think I did. We were in impoverished financial circumstances. I had three sisters, and I'd grown up in a very much a female environment, up in the Dandenongs, where all the men folk were away at the war. Far more sort of female influence in my upbringing and general environment than uh, than many. And in those days, immediately after uh, the war, and I was going through from primary into secondary school and so on, the services were held in huge regard because of the performance in World War II. I suppose that was uh, made more so by the fact that in my case, I had the, the uncles all having been involved and I looked, as I think all youngsters at that stage did, on the services, service officers in particular, as you know, men to really be looked up to. And in fact, all servicemen were treated with huge respect. So I had that at the back of my mind. I had a, a liking for the sea, which I can't explain. My naval uncle had taken me on board one of the ships he was serving in, and I'd found it fascinating. My mother had moved enormously, had done sacrificed an enormous amount because I'd been brought up in, a, in such a feminine sort of environment to get me to boarding school. I won a scholarship to Melbourne Grammar, but I had to board there, and the boarding fee was £150 a year. And my mother went out to work on the telephone exchange, Calorama and the Dandenongs, at £3 a week to get that £150. By the end of the second year, I knew she was struggling to manage and things were getting very tight. And I saw this ad for the, the Navy. And I thought, along with many others, I think there were 760 applied or something for the, uh, the 28 cadetships at the Royal Australian Naval College. So you didn't think your chances were very good. I applied and uh, was lucky enough, privileged enough to win, a, win one of those. And what year was that? I went in in January 1950. I'd boarded at Melbourne Grammar for the two years prior to that and uh, started the Naval College along with 27 others and 13-year-olds in January 50. What was your father's view then of you going down a military path? Did he comment on it? No, he didn't. He wasn't, he wasn't sort of part of my upbringing really then. He was sort of switched off and he had uh, his thoughts were elsewhere. So you joined in 1950. During your time training in the college, career, of course, flares up. Did you look at that and think, oh, I might be, we'll see how long this lasts, I might get pulled into this? Never entered my head, that, that sort of thought. Never entered my head. I felt enormously privileged getting into the Navy, wearing the uniform. I knew that I was committing myself to service to the country, and I thought there was nothing more honourable. I didn't really think much about Korea because it was so far down the track. We were going through this part of our secondary education. I mean, Naval College in those days was four years of secondary education with a hell of a lot of naval subjects on top. At uh, the Naval College, it was harsh. It was regimented. It was highly disciplined. And it was uh, quite difficult for youngsters to cope with. It was very physical, a lot of 
lot demanded of you both mentally and uh, physically, but you learnt enormous amount about the world. It was a cloistered life, yes, but then that uh, one didn't realise it at the time. You accepted it as your lot. So once you complete your training, where's your first deployment? Well, the training in those days was very differently shaped to the way it is today. After four years at the Naval College down here at Cerberus, we then went overseas to UK to join up with our RN Royal Navy contemporaries. We did 10 months in the cadet training ship on cruises to the West Indies and then back to UK and uh, then up to Scandinavia and around Scotland and so on, which all sounds wonderfully glamorous and all that when you say it, but it wasn't uh, easy and it wasn't all beer and skittles and like a cruise is today. We were the... Well, if midshipmen were regarded as the lowest form of marine life, cadet midshipmen were one below that. And uh, we did all the dirty jobs. There were were hardly any sailors on board the cadet training ships uh, because we were acted as the sailors. We scrubbed the decks, we kept the watches, we scrubbed the bilges, cleaned out all the quarters and that sort of thing. You were exposed to the sort of life which was going to be experienced by the sailors you were being taught to lead in the years ahead. So you were doing your hard yards. Jim then graduated from being below the lowest form of marine life, cadet midshipman, to the lowest form of marine life, midshipman. This next bit jumps ahead to when Jim was a sub-lieutenant. Confirmed as sub-lieutenants then, and you were sent to sea in that capacity, and you had to get your watch-keeping ticket. Show that you were able and competent to be left safely in charge of a ship up to a destroyer frigate size. Officer of the watch. Officer of the watch, yes. The attainment of the watchkeeping ticket, which came roughly seven and a half to eight years after you joined the service, effectively marked the formal end of your training. In that capacity, I, I served first in a Bathurst-class minesweeper or sloop. There were 56 of that class built in Australia during World War II, during and soon after World War II. I served in HMS Cootamundra. I was the navigator there. I had various other jobs as captain secretary and communicator and goodness knows what, because there were very few officers there. And it was a, a small ship or a ship's company of about 90. It was pretty small, but it was your blooding. That's where I got my watchkeeping ticket. That's where I um, came to grips with being a young officer in employment rather than training. And where do you go next after the minesweeper? After the minesweeper, I, I served in HMAS Tobruk, and, and that was my first exposure to operational Navy. Tobruk was a battle-class destroyer and took part in Far East Strategic Reserve Service in the Malaysian and China Seas, Malacca Strait, all that sort of area in uh, 1959. We had a nine-month deployment up there. First time I'd seen the Far East. It was a bigger ship. It had a four-stripe captain in command. It was a, a mind-broadening experience after I'd had the, the luck of the Kutamundra to find my feet at sea. Service in the Strategic Reserve was really my first operational service of any sort. We fired some shots and bombardment and support of troops in Malaysia. That was as close as we came to actually, you know, in confronting an enemy. So it was more or less the Cold War. A lot of 
revolution going on in Malaysia, the Southeast Asian nations were trying to sort out how they wanted to be arranged in their various different sectors in the Far East. And the particular difficulty was the Malaysia, which had similar aims and objectives to places further east in Borneo and so on, wanted some of them as part of its federation. Singapore was a, an entity that couldn't go along with all this. and Ultimately, while the Malaysian states did federate and incorporated quite a bit of what had been Borneo and Sarawak and Sabah, there were certain areas kept free of that, Brunei being one, and Singapore, which was gradually asserting itself, being positioned as an entrepôt between East and West, a magnificent port and so on. It wanted to be independent and operate independently, and there emerged there uh, one of the most effective leaders, political leaders of my whole lifetime. That was Lee Kuan Yew, who came in in 1961 and, and ruled effectively in Singapore for over 30 years. John Carroll also grew up with an eye to life on the sea. When and where were you born? I was born in Kew, Victoria, uh, on the 7th of January 1944. Wartime baby. Yes, yeah, they said that the thing started to look up when I arrived, so that's what my mother said. My father was at sea at the time. My father was a Dems gunner who, who served mainly on merchant ships as a guns crew. The uh, merchant ships were fitted with a, a 4.5 or a 4.7. He served on many ships during the wartime period. Uh, one of the ones that he remembers quite uh, vividly with uh, fond memories was the Cape Pillar or the Cape York. Uh, the lighthouse ships that they used to sail around the coast of Australia. My uncle serves on, I know he served on the Canberra, and he served as Chief ERA on the Colac, one of the corvettes. Both he and his brother served right throughout the war years, and my father stayed in until 1964. So you are born in 1944. Growing up with World War II in the recent past, was it discussed much with you as a child, or was it shied away more, from? More the Korean War, followed closely by the Malayan emergency. Father was always very astute as very aware of the servicemen and what things things that were going on. Did he talk about his own service much? No, not not to a great extent. Uh, he was very proud of the fact that, that he'd served in the Navy and I think that kind of uh, rubbed off on me. When I was struggling at school at uh, year eight and year nine level, uh, he said, oh, look, I'll see what I can do about getting you an apprenticeship, which he did. And I was apprenticed to the Olympia Naval Dockyard in 1959. I just barely made 15, but I'd barely scraped through at year nine, so. So the Navy was, um, it was always something you'd been looking up towards because of the stories of your father? My father, uh, when he was still in the service, took me down to Williamstown Dockyard while I was converting the Q-class destroyers at the age of eight, and he said, son, don't join the Navy. If this is the best they can do is convert ships, why don't they build new ones? So, But at the time, the Q-class destroyers were being converted into frigates. Uh, they were taking all the armoured off them. I think Father was a bit proud of the fact that they used to be destroyers and why convert them to frigates. But he wasn't aware of the tactical side of things, whether the main aim of the Navy in those days was to for anti-submarine warfare capability. So uh, 
was to find that out in later life. Well, the apprenticeship was at the Naval Dockyard. My apprenticeship papers say that the that I could be sent anywhere at the apprentice master's discretion. The apprentice master at that time was a Royal Australian Navy captain, Captain G.P. Lord. I've got it written on my apprenticeship papers that I could be sent anywhere for any reason uh, at the Navy's discretion. So I've considered myself to have served in the Navy since I was about 15. Uh, come 18, my father, having served in the in the Naval Reserve, suggested that uh, maybe the Navy Reserve would be a good thing for me to do. So I signed on to that. Uh, I did the medical. I did the uh, the entrance exam for it. And I was taken on as an ordinary seaman. I was still serving my apprenticeship. And uh, it was uh, a good supplement to one's wages. When I finished my apprenticeship in 64, I went down to... Cerberus as a reservist and carried out my did my trade test as a as a shipwright. The funny part of that was the the guy that was supposed to um, supervise me while I was doing it was a joiner, and I had to take out the garbage strike and the first two planks on a thirty two foot double bank whaler and replace them. I was given a set period of time to do it in. I went overtime, and the shipwright officer Pat Timmons. Uh, said to me, well, you've gone overtime by rights, I should fire that. And I said, well, if you want it done properly, you, don't, you can't put a time frame on uh, things like that. He said, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. We'll put it in the water, and if it leaks, you fail, and if it doesn't leak, I'll pass you. So he put it in, they slipped it back into the water. He jumped around in the boat, and at that particular point where I'd done the repair work, he said, it's not going to leak, is it? I said, no, trick of the trade. You showed them. What about your naval training? Naval training as a reservist was two nights a week at uh, Lonsdale, HMAS Lonsdale in Port Melbourne. Couple that up with uh, one night a week at uh, Footscray Tech, studying boat building and naval architecture. I stayed at Williamstown Naval Dockyard until mid-1966 and applied to change over to the full-time permanent service. I was sent to HMAS Marimba, the apprentices training establishment at Quakers Hill in New South Wales. I spent six months there. I was posted from there back to Cerberus to do the Petty Officers Man Management course and I was then posted from there to HMA Sydney, Troop Transport. In what capacity? In the capacity of a naval shipwright, an acting naval shipwright second class. When I completed my trade test in 64, I was officially known as a shipwright four. The shipwright fourth class, which I don't think is any lower. The next veteran is Douglas Symes Jr. Yes, the son of Douglas Symes Sr. from the previous episode. So I've spoken with your father, Doug Sr. Uh, can you tell me a bit about your childhood? I was born in 46 in Carlton. Well, my childhood was a, a very pleasant, happy childhood. I grew up in uh, North Melbourne and Northcote till I was about the age of nine years. Uh, Dad was in the Navy at the time and we were living with our grandmother until uh, my, my sister came along. There was three of us then. Had a younger brother and sister, and uh, we moved to Northcote to Ben Street. Then I went to school at the uh, Helen Street Primary School for a few years, and uh, Dad was on the Sydney. He'd just come back from Korea, and uh, he secured a house down in uh, Crib Point. Uh, so we all moved down there to live, and that's where I spent uh, my childhood from the age of nine years on. My dad was stationed at Cerberus at that time. Yeah, that's where we sort of we lived. 
because your father described how he rejoined the navy after World War Two and before Korea to provide for the family. And that's right. Yeah, he was away a lot then. Yeah, he was. He he, he had a when he left the navy, he might have had a bit of a hard time readjusting. Uh, he had jobs in various places. I remember going to a place in North Melbourne there where he was breaking down cars at night time. Uh, he used to drive tow trucks. He used to push uh, carts around uh, the Victoria Market uh, where my uncles worked. Uh, he had probably three jobs at the time and I think life was pretty hard for him and uh, he went back into the navy uh, as a butcher and I think uh, life from then on whilst it was never really easy because there, there was six kids in the family eventually it got a little bit easier for him and he, he was a good provider along with mum. And what inspires you then to join the Navy in 1962? You're 16, 17? Yeah I was 15 and a half. 15 and a half okay. I was a bit of a dreamer really and not so much of a stay at the at a job all day, you know. I wanted to get out and see things and do things. I think that's what led me towards the Navy. The avenues to go into the Navy at the time were as an apprentice, and I thought, well, even though I don't want to be one, I've got the uh, background with the technical school to go into the apprenticeship side. I never actually got in, but they gave me an alternate offer to go in as a junior recruit over at HMAS Lewin in Western Australia. It was uh, 1962. Well, I wanted to go. It was a, an adventure. It was away from home. It was away from a family of eight, you know. Oh, not so much eight. There was only six of us then, but the other two come later. But uh, I think Dad, Dad and Mum looked forward to me going too because I was, I was eating a fair amount at that time. And uh, I've got across to Western Australia and my whole world opened up to me. It was really good. That's just what I wanted. Well, your great-grandfather, grandfather, father mm. and mother, and not to mention the history on your mother's side as well, which I do know is extensive. Yeah. All this military tradition, did that feel like a sense of inevitability or that didn't cross your mind? You just joined up for more practical reasons? I suppose it was there in the background. I, I, I never knew a real lot about uh, my grandfather. I knew they were because I saw the pictures up on the wall and all that sort of thing. But I probably wasn't... Uh, attracted to it because of them even though dad was in the navy and i used to go into the naval depot we used to go swimming and that i never ever thought that i wanted to be in the navy it just sort of come up at the time you know how when you're young and you you go from one level to another to another to another and finally you find where you want to be and things just happen and i think that's what happened to me uh, i think the adventure of it sounded pretty good too you know Tell me about your first few years in the Navy before Vietnam begins. When I joined the Navy at 15 and a half, I was a bit lost at first, but a good thing happened to me. Dad was on the Melbourne at the time, and they came through Western Australia while I was there. It was probably in about my eighth week that I was in the Navy, so it would be uh, probably uh, March, April. And uh, I, I, was, I was finding it a bit hard because I'd never ever looked after myself before, and uh, you had a lot of peer pressure and things like that. And I wasn't a real big bloke and I probably wasn't really sure of myself. Uh, but Dad come through and uh, sort of kicked me backside and cleaned out my locker and got all my washing done for me and told me to keep on top of it. And, you know, he, he gave me a bit of encouragement and I think that really set me going then. And subsequently, I did my year there at HMAS Lewin with, with 150 other boys. It was fairly hard. Uh, but by the time I'd finished there, I realised that... Uh, life was going to be a lot better than what it was there because under training you have to go through a lot of hardships that you don't suffer as ship's company and all that. Went to HMAS service, so I was categorised as a, a stores vittling rating and I did my course down there 
and uh, I spent a year and a half at, at service. And luckily enough, Dad was at service at the time. He came off the Melbourne, and he was the chief butcher in the uh, in the butcher shop, and I was working in the clothing store. And I used to live at home. I used to travel home every night, which was probably good in one way, uh, not in another. It helped me save a bit of money because all the, the other young blokes that I was uh, knocking around with, they used to get on the grog every night. I wanted to do it too. Of course, I was I was still sort of under my underage. parents' guidance and, and underage too, yeah, which was probably a good thing for me. I was probably, probably a bit immature, but uh, as things went on, you know, as, as things progressed, I sort of grew a bit more... The Navy straightened you out. I think so, yeah. I think so. And uh, I, I started playing a lot of football and uh, the football sort of helped me out. And I got to know quite a few people. And, yeah, it was good. And then subsequently, what happens uh, in a situation like that, you start learning things and you, you progress in uh, rank. And I started doing exams that were, were laid before me and uh, there's always an avenue for advancement in the services. And I, I then uh, became an able seaman and when I became an able seaman, I then was posted to HMOs Parramatta in uh, October 1964, which was just prior to Vietnam uh, starting. And what was your role aboard the Parramatta? Well, we had 240 people on board the ship, and my job was to uh, have the food in the galley so the cooks could cook it. Almost following in your father's footsteps. Virtually. Well, he, he was a butcher cutting the meat up. And uh, I was the boat that used to deliver it. But uh, on, on this ship, we didn't have a butcher. It was all box mate and everything. And uh, so for the 240 people that lived on board, they'd probably eat, when you think of a person, they'd probably eat around about two kilos of food a day. So there was 480 kilos of food that had to be delivered to the galley for the cooks, apart from the potatoes, which the cooks used to do themselves. There was me and another chap, and we used to work out of uh, stores that were three decks below in the ship. Uh, there was refrigerators in very confined uh, positions. We had to lift all the food up. There was no mechanical means. It was all done by, by grunt, uh, by ropes, tackles, or just lifting it yourself. It was very hard work. And I went from, when I joined the ship, I was probably around about 80 kilos. And by the time I got off the ship a year later, I was probably around about 60 kilos. So the day-to-day work was arduous. It was hard, but rewarding. Uh, I had a, a petty officer on there who was a very hard task master. I thought anyway, you hear about people being uh, firm but fair. Uh, he was very firm and not very fair at times. But the wonderful thing about it was uh, what he taught me, I couldn't have been taught by anybody else. He, he realised the limit of my capabilities and my abilities and he worked towards that. And uh, by the time I came off that ship, I'd passed out to be a leading hand and I was made up to a leading hand as I came off the ship. That was uh, one thing that worked in my favour. The logistics of all that is astounding. You've got 480 kilos of food just to feed the ship's company on one day. How many days would you have food stored for at any one time? Oh, well, our, uh, our dry provisions and, and uh, frozen provisions, it was about three months' worth. We would have around about uh, 20,000 pounds of meat, 20,000 pounds of frozen goods, and uh, and all the, the other things like the uh, vegetables and uh, eggs and milk and all that, we'd get as we went along. So you'd be out at sea for 14 days. You'd use your bread and milk and, and uh, cheese and, and all that, eggs. Then you'd get more in. And then 
you'd keep on going. You wouldn't get your meat all the time. You'd use your reserves there until you got down low. Then you'd restore again. The same with your dry provisions. You'd uh, keep on using them. And things that you'd use every day, things like uh, your jams and your flour and that, you'd replenish them as, as you went along. And then you'd have one main store probably every two months or something like that fairly worked out well logistically you know the, the way the the way the trip went everybody thought it was oh we're going here we're going there and nobody knew where we were going but i think they really did know where you were going so that you can replenish the ship you know in in, in timely fashion you got to feed the crew and that's right it's not so much a great logistical concern in peacetime and then even during vietnam per se but i can imagine going back a bit more into say world war Two, you just have to be aware that although these ships are very on one hand super self-sufficient and they have everything they need on board if you don't plan things right or things go wrong then ships stranded out there and they're on their own and if they run out that's Oh, that's right, yeah. But, you know, the people that, that did this job, uh, they, they were very competent. It wasn't sort of a haphazard thing, you know. They, they knew what they were going to use. Uh, we used to, you know, we used to make all the menus in conjunction with the, with the PO cook and all that sort of thing. And you'd know what you had in your store through your ledgers and that, and you'd work out what you'd need and, and you'd try to have a, a variation of food going through so you wouldn't use all your beef at once or all your pork at once or all your lamb at once. And, you know, you'd have a balance menu and uh, all that sort of thing so it was a, a learning curve a lifetime learning curve as you were doing the work you know as you were going along you learned the little tricks and all that sort of thing and you knew that if you were going to a place uh, just say you're going to go into manila well you, you know you'd get a lot of good fresh fruit there and all that sort of thing you know so you'd, you'd work your, your budget out so that you can cover for the fresh fruit and try to get it cheap and all that sort of thing and uh, uh, it was a good 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 job David Dwyer was born in the same year as Doug Symes Jr., 1946, and also has a father who served in World War II. David's father's experience was particularly horrific. Did you have any family serve in World War II? My father was a, an infantry soldier, finished as a sergeant, and was discharged just before I was born. Where did he serve? Greece, Crete, Middle East, Syria, New Guinea. It's quite a resume. Yes, it's unfortunately... He was uh, asked to go to Melbourne or contacted. My mother was extremely ill. He'd been married about a year. They'd been married when he came back from the Middle East because she had peritonitis and wasn't expected to live. He made his way down to Melbourne. By that time, my mother recovered and he was sent back to his uh, battalion via a uh, staging army base up near the Melbourne Zoo. On the board there was a call for volunteers for a secret mission. Thinking it was Z-Force in Borneo, he and about 30 other young men that were going back to their regiments and battalions put their hands up. They were flown to the Atherton Tablelands to a base there where they signed the Secrets Act. And as I said, unfortunately, it was uh, to see how poison gas would affect troops in the jungle because the Japanese were being pushed back and they were afraid that the Japanese would use poison gas. They had all their results from World War I in Europe as you know, in the jungle, where your pores open up, they drop it uh, on the trees and drips. How long it would take to put a uh, Australian soldier out of action or a soldier? And my father, I don't know how they delivered the gas, but he was hit in the face with whatever the delivery unit was. He swallowed a, quite a lot. It blinded him. And for six months, the family didn't know where he was. My mother, she was frantic. My mother received a letter written by a medic at my father's bedside saying he was blinded. It was temporary and that he would uh, be contacting her in a few months. So seven months, virtually to the day, he came back and was put in a repatriation hospital in Heidelberg, and my mother visited him. 
and then he was discharged uh, from the hospital to go back to the army. This affected his vision for the whole of his life. He wore glasses and eventually when he died at 52 years of age, he was blind. There were severe burns on his eyes from the gas, but it also affected his heart, his liver, his lungs and kidneys. And he died 52 prematurely because of those experiments. When he was discharged from the hospital and went back to service, was he ordered to do so or did he volunteer? No, he had to go back to service to be demobbed, as they called it, demobilised. So was down in Parkville, back to the uh, army base where uh, he'd volunteered on his way back to his unit in New Guinea. He never reached his uh, battalion again because uh, he went via the uh, secret mission so forth. And the funny thing was uh, a friend of his was a guy called Reg Saunders, a first commissioned Aboriginal officer in the Australian Army, was going to Korea and he uh, contacted my father, who's they were very good friends, and asked him if he'd come back into the Army and uh, go to Korea with him as his uh, RSM. My father was ready for commission before he uh, came down to Melbourne uh, to a captain, but uh, he never got that far because he didn't stay in the Army. My mother immediately said, no, I don't want you to go because I was born and there was my sister on the way. How old were you when your father died? I was 26. I just returned from Vietnam in 1972. He died about six months after that. Did he ever talk with you about his wartime experience? Yes, he did. On He didn't until I joined up. I uh, My grandfather served in World War One in Egypt, Gallipoli and in the Western Front and was wounded just before the end of the war. Yeah, my dad told me a lot about him and what experiences he had. And then I was, uh, as he put it, a returned man. So we used to sit down on Anzac Day and he'd tell me all about it. Before that, no, he didn't. But I remember all the returned men, again, using his expression, in Ascot Vale, where I lived, on Anzac Day, going down the street. We lived in a uh, housing commission area and just about every single person in there, uh, the family, the male was a returned man. And uh, they'd be all walking down the street to catch the tram into the city to go to the Anzac Day March in their demobilised suits, which were black with white pinstripes. My dad had that, I'd say, 30 years or something. He kept that in his wardrobe, only wore it on Anzac Day. What first inspired you to join the Navy? On my maternal side, my mother's father, who was a chef, and her grandfather was a chef, were in the Merchant Marine. Her father, David, my namesake, had... uh, served in World War I and was sunk. His merchant ship was sunk. And I never met him because he died at 35 from complications because he was on a ship, one of the very few that was oil-fired and swallowed a lot of oil when uh, the ship was sunk. And uh, he died at 35 from consumption, they called it, which I suppose was a type of TB or his lungs were wrecked. And uh, I wanted to be a chef and I wanted to go to sea. It was uh, during the credit squeeze, there were no apprenticeships around, so I couldn't do any, couldn't get an apprenticeship. I left school when I was 16, Footscray Technical School, and worked in the railways for 10 months until I uh, was old enough to join the Navy. I'd already done the entry exam, and they said, come back when you're 17, we'll we'll contact you. And they did. I went in and uh, did the psych. And six days after I turned 17, I joined the Navy because it, it really completed what I wanted to do, which was be a chef and also uh, go to sea. Tell me about your training. I joined HMAS Cerberus 25th of November, 1963. All the other uh, recruits, or about 120 in my intake, was one of the bigger intakes because with the credit squeeze, they expanded the armed services and took in a lot of 
lads my age. They interstate guys came in other buses, of course, and we all uh, got there at varying times during the day on a Monday. They tell you the routine, what's going on. We weren't issued any uniforms. Bit confusing, so different than uh, we'd imagined it to be. On the Friday, they had ceremonial divisions down there, and the admiral came down the reviewing officer, and his name was Harrington, Hairy Face Harrington, because he had mud and chop whiskers. And uh, we had to go, even though we were in civilians and we were stood to one side, fallen in by our instructors, the whole intake. And I remember it to this day, and it inspired me, where he said, the Army takes the best, the Air Force takes the rest, the Navy takes the best of the best. So I've remembered this this very day. It was pretty inspirational because it felt pretty special that he'd uh, singled us out to say that. The uh, training went for three months. Uh, it was pretty tight. We had to double everywhere. We weren't allowed to march. We had to double, even going for a meal singly or in pairs. Our instructors uh, doubled behind us if they were young enough. If they were older, pre-war petty officers, chief petty officers, they rode a push bike and uh, called the called the step. So we doubled everywhere. We kept duties at two watches, port and starboard. We kept duties, uh, and those duties would be we could go to a school, one of the schools, the uh, School of Engineering or Electrical School, uh, Catering School, and we would clean. That would be our duty, or we would clean in our own blocks, or barracks as the army liked to call them, for that uh, night and go to the meal. And one of the things, that's where I got to like tripe, because if you were duty and were working, and because Cerberus is a very big place, and you got back, you got back pretty late to the end of the meal hour, there wasn't much left except tripe. You were hungry because you doubled everywhere and you're 17 and you could eat a, uh, a grilled boot. But one of the things that I do remember to at uh, 1600 when we secured it, they had afternoon tea, and it was usually yeast bun. You'd go in there and devour about six of those and a cup of tea. We did seamanship training, firefighting, and also went out to the rifle range and did our shooting out there to qualify, and uh, down to the parade ground and do marching. We didn't do it in recruit school because at that time there was no parade ground there. There wasn't any concrete. It was all dirt between the blocks, so we would go down to the sacred acre, as they called it, and the gunnery instructors down there, as they were called in those days, GIs, they would take us for the marching with our instructor standing to one side, and we passed out. We had to pass out in our knots, of course, seamanship, a theory, practical. We were taught that you showered of a night. You were not permitted to shower of a morning to wake yourself up. It was of a night. Why is that? Because they don't like you get in bed with a day's dirt and sweat on you. And uh, on a ship where you're very close together, they can really smell up if someone's what they call a bug. They've got BO and everything else, and you've got 30 or 40 men in a, a small area, either on a hammock or in a bunk. It really smells so. And they would enforce that at sea. So we went. I joined HMAS Vendetta at Williamstown Naval Dockyard. I was eight years old, daring class destroyer. And I just thought, oh, all my dreams have come true. I'm on a warship. And they were. They were heavily armed and they were a beautiful looking thing. Uh, we were given our mess where we were asleep, bunk, locker, did our post in so that we knew what part of the uh, ship was which. And one week later, I was sent back to service with about 20 of my guys to do what they call PWT, pre-weapons training. Uh, mine was in the uh, X-turret aft and I was in the gun bay and I was on five of the left, which means I was a loading number of loading shells that came up from the magazine onto a hoist that went up into the gun house where they loaded into the cannons. Well, five of the left means I, means I was a left barrel. And uh, that was my action stations. Uh, when they called action stations, I went to that turret with the rest of the crew. In the top, you had three of the left, three of the right, I think four of the left, four of the right, which is the cordite number, shell number. And then you had a, uh, the turret captain. He sat in a seat above and looked down on everything. And in 
the gun bay where I was, there was a leading seaman quartermaster gunner who supervised everything to make sure everything went well. I was pretty happy that I wasn't in the magazine with the hatches locked and no chance of getting out if there was a problem. Did our training at Cerberus. There was a turret, used to be a four and a half inch turret within the base and we did dummy firings on that. There was nothing in it, just how to load the shells and then they'd shoot them down the chute, pick them up and put them inside and go through it all again before we went out to Westhead Gunnery Range and do a a four and a half inch turret out there, which was the real thing. And we did firings out to sea there before we went back to the ship. Three weeks later, we sailed up to Sydney, to Chowder Bay. I remember Chowder Bay and I remember our first day of sailing. We had scrambled eggs. Our guys had never been to sea before and the scrambled eggs were all over the deck throughout the ship because they were seasick. I had a pretty strong stomach, so I was pretty lucky. And I'd been warned by an old hand, don't have too much to eat. We got to Chowder Bay and we sent ashore the ship was to refuel I got onto the wharf, the wharf was moving, which was because I'd been on the ship getting used to the, the motion of the ship. From there, we went alongside in Garden Island for about two weeks, and then left to go out with HMAS Melbourne and just got a new bow after colliding with the Voyager, which is a sister ship of Vendetta. And we went down to Jarvis Bay and just out of Jarvis Bay doing the same sort of things with the committee on board to, to see just what happened. And after that, we went back to Sydney and uh, had about a week alongside, went back to Jarvis Bay and worked the ship up, which otherwise they, they do all the drills, to make sure that the ship's ready. And we then went back to Sydney and uh, a week later we sailed for Singapore, went via Manus Island and we played football against uh, the Manus Island Navy base and then straight to Singapore from there. Our next veteran is Willie Beatty, who always had no doubt he joined the Navy. When and where were you born? Uh, born on the 11th of 6, 1947 in Glasgow, Scotland. And uh, when did you migrate to Australia? 1955, come to Australia. Strathaird. Tell me about your childhood. Oh, not much to tell, really. Was a little, good little Catholic boy. Went to St. Patrick's School, Mentone. Uh, left school, become a apprentice turner fitter, then decided I wanted to join the Navy, so I joined the Navy. Pretty straightforward. Yeah. Did you have any family military history? Uh, my father's in the Navy during World War II, but he never talked much about it. He lost two brothers in Singapore. He was a petty officer shipwright, and he'd come to Australia and to Sydney once, and that was as far as I know about him. Asked him about his medals, and he told me he threw them away. So your uncles were in uh, Force Z? In the Army, in the Army, in Singapore, yes, and they got killed, yeah. And do you know what ships your father served no, on? No, he, he never talked about it, never said a word. Wow. That's all I ever heard, those three things, so... And what then inspired you to join the Navy? I've always had a feeling for it, always liked to see, and always read a lot about it, and always wanted to join it, even when I was at school. So nuns used to have special lessons on Saturday so I could join the as a junior recruit the Navy, but uh, never eventuated. But then I joined full-time, and that was, that was it. Tell me about your training. Uh, I was down at service, uh, recruit school, as everybody does. Then I joined Yarra, and I came back to service, did what they call a Stokers course as, uh, as an engineer. Did that for three months, met all my mates, then joined other ships and away we went. And uh, what was your first ship you were deployed on? My first ship was HMS Yarra, 1964. We did uh, an unknown voyage. We took HMS Melbourne to Butterfield Airfield, dropped the planes off, which is not documented. Then we did the Indonesian confrontation, 1964, in the Yarra. John Lord grew up with everyone assuming he'd join the army. He proved them wrong. So, John, when were you born? Uh, 1949, in November, a post-war baby, I suppose. And where were you born? Born in Perth in Western Australia. Uh, both my parents uh, uh, were living in Perth. My mother, though, initially came out from Scotland back in the mid-1920s, where my father's uh, 
you go back um, three or four generations, and uh, he was a, a convict from the fleets came out to West Australia in 1856. And what did your uh, father do for a living? He was on the land when he was a young boy, and then, of course, the Depression hit, and they had to leave the land, as happened all around Australia, all around the world, in fact. The family, I think, and the history's a bit vague here, and unfortunately, uh, in those years when there were a lot of people around who knew it, I didn't follow it, um, they shifted off the land and went to Perth. I guess my father's saving grace was that he was still young, about 17, when the Second World War started, and he was first at the door to enlist. So he enlisted in the Second World War right at the start. With which branch? As a basic foot soldier, and off he went in the 2nd and 11th Battalion, which is a West Australian battalion. They were very state-based battalions during the Second World War, of course. Uh, so he enlisted in the 2nd 11th Battalion and stayed with that throughout the war. Initially went to Palestine, and then, of course, uh, Japan started to get close to Australia, and nearly all Australian troops were drawn and sent back to Australia for jungle training, which they did, and then sent into Papua New Guinea. So was he you know, fighting in Leigh, Finchhaven? Or? Yeah, he did Leigh, Finchhaven. I still had one newspaper photo of him uh, walking the Kokoda track, which was published in the, one of the West Australian evening papers. So did he fight at Kokoda or he was walking the track after the fact? Uh, he was walking the track, but uh, he told me, not that my father, like many of our fathers of my generation, would never talk about the war. It's the one thing he did mention was uh, that photograph, two of his um, people in each platoon got shot, taken out by snipers doing that track. So you could say they did fight in it. So what was it like growing up with the shadow of World War II in the recent past? I know, you know, on the one hand, not discussed, but on the other, it was the one of the most impactful events in our nation's history. Yes, it was. And, and it was interesting. I guess it's only later, Alex, that you try and put it in context and think about it. And particularly me, who's tried to do a bit of family research. And then lots of people ask me about my naval career, which we all discuss openly. My father never discussed his army career four or five years as it was uh, in conflict. My memories are that uh, my father took me to dawn services when I was quite young, marched occasionally. But it'd be fair to say, unlike the devotion that many have to marching these days in the last 20 or 30 years, my father, I would remember, probably marched about, uh, that I can recall, about four times. And when you eventually joined the Navy, did he come back and talk to you about his experiences at War Moor, or how did he react when you joined up? No, he didn't. And and I guess, yeah, that, that was interesting. And I guess at the time, I was a bit surprised, but of course, you don't press your father. And to be fair, I never saw much of my father after I joined the Navy. I was uh, at school in Kalgoorlie, far away place, but my father had was the only service person in Kalgoorlie. And his job then was all the Army, Navy, Airport Force people coming home and leave to West Australia had to come by train. And they changed trains in Kalgoorlie. My father's job was to meet the train, make sure they all managed to get on the next train to get them to Perth on leave. So it was a unique job. But um, we were up in Kalgoorlie. It was just assumed I would stay and do my matriculation and join the army and go through uh, Duntroon. So that was it. A lot of circumstances and me being unhappy with school. In the end, I joined the Navy. So he was quite happy with it to answer your question shortly. But then to follow on to your uh, main question, which is, did he open up and talk more about the war after that? And particularly even after I'd been to Vietnam? And the answer is no. I just never talked about it. Interesting. And why was there the assumption that you were going to go to Duntroon? I guess because my father, after the war, got out, worked for about 18 months on the roads and didn't like it, and then luckily got back into the army, and that's where he spent the rest of his life. He went back into the army, based in Western Australia, ended up with what they called uh, a cadet battalion, where they go along to high schools and schools and train uh, young people or do that support effort to uh, young people in cadet corps, and he did that uh, for the rest of his army career. I just kind of always, I guess, had that military feel. My mother was 
in the Air Force and Navy during the Second World War. My grandfather and my mother's side fought in the First World War and the Second World War, and my grandfather and my father's side fought in the First World War and Second World War. And I just thought an army career would be rather rather good. And the plan was to be an officer and go through Duntroon. Well, you didn't fall too far from that, Stead, just a slightly different No, track. I just changed services, that was all, yeah. Uh, what was your mother's role in World War II? I think stores and packing, which was seen to be the role for most women. She initially joined the Air Force, and I've I got to dropped her records down, as you can do now, which is great. And I think she did a year or two there, and then did a year or two in the Navy, doing much the same jobs. So when do you finally join the Navy? I joined in uh, 1965, and uh, it was a fairly short term decision. I was getting very unhappy with school. My parents were very concerned I was going to leave school at year three high school rather than do a matriculation. It was a unique set of circumstances. I'll say at this stage, the only boat I'd been on was the uh, Perth to Rottnest Ferry. I'd never been on any other boat, had no interest <laughs> in the sea. And I could swim because had a swimming pool in Kalgoorlie, but that was about the limit of my water exposure. But my parents were quite concerned that I expressed these views. I was going to join a bank or be with what was then called PMG Telstra today. And through Kalgoorlie came the Defence Force recruiting team. And the Defence Force recruiting team had a Navy leader. And my father and mother hosted him to dinner because they were the only defence people there. And this was while the Kalgoorlie show was on. Anyway, apparently, I'm so told, they got into a conversation about me. This, uh, this lieutenant of the recruiting team said, you can join the Navy at 15. So my mother aired the idea with me. I was going to join the Army. This was exciting. I could leave school now. So I said, I'll be in that. I had to do an exam, which I did. This was about... October, and uh, following the exam, which I passed, I then did an interview, and next thing I knew, Navy were interested in me joining the Naval College. My assumption was that was the end of my school. I was off to Navy to be an officer. Little did I know, when I joined Naval College on the 26th of January 1965, that was the start of two more years' school, because Navy took you through school to matriculation. My parents knew that all the time. So I think they won and not me. I think so. One incident, which has an impact, and I still remember it precisely today. My father was in the army, obviously, a long time, so all of his uh, colleagues I used to call Uncle So-and-so, Uncle So-and-so. Uh, one of them was a warrant officer who went off to Vietnam and was one of those first advisors and observers, and was Uncle, I just forget his name today. Anyway, I remember that when I was about 14, about a year or so before I joined the Navy, he came back, and I wasn't allowed to see him, and nor was my sister, and we didn't know why. He came round for dinner, and then... He disappeared again and he went back to Vietnam, never returned. My father and mother did explain to me several years later on that the reason we weren't allowed to see him was he was a casually uh, had had bomb go off in front of him when he was doing his advising and was not really that pretty to look at. And he'd really only come back to say goodbye to close friends and then go back into Vietnam and to continue advising until eventually he, he died. So, uh, I mean, that was an incident that I just remember probably had more impact on me later on than at the time. When did he die? Uh, this would have been, I, I'm not sure, I think he died about six months after he, he left us, so that would have been about 63, 64 he saw us, so it must have been in the very early days of the, of the advisors in Vietnam. So he knew that his wounds were going to catch up with him pretty quickly? Yeah, well, yeah, as far as his wounds were, my understanding is that he just looked so bad, there was no way he wanted to be back in society, so he went back to finish, well, to keep doing the job over there. So you joined 1965. Can you tell me about your training? Back in those days, it was fairly uh, boring and standard. It was like being at a private school, in fact, which I was totally unused to because I'd come from a state high school. You went to Jarvis Bay, or I went to Jarvis Bay in 1965. The aim was you graduated in three and a half years later, and therefore in middle of 68. The first two years were primarily academics. In those days, years four and five, matriculation, schoolwork. But on top of that, there was naval training thrown in and heaps of sport. And you were really locked away. You didn't have leave or anything until you reached the age of... Uh, 
uh, used to be able to get weekend leave when you reached the age of 18. So the rest of the time you were just there the whole time. What was the culture like? Culture was very public schoolish in that there was uh, punishment. There was uh, senior groups punishing junior groups. It wasn't so much the the victimisation that you do hear about, um, although there were some people with nasty uh, behavioural problems that used to pick on junior cadets, but they were fairly rare and controlled by their peers, so that wasn't too bad. But you did a lot of running punishment and normal fitness-type punishment like that for not having your bed made properly or your shirt was looking a bit scruffy or something like that. So it was a very, very public school attitude. The final veteran for this episode is Mark Kinder. When and where were you born? Born in uh, Melbourne, Elstonwick, 1950. Dad was um, a carpenter and my mother was um, a stenographer. Uh, she was very uh, high up in the uh, US Army during the Second World War, JAG stenographer. So you, your mother was American or she was working for them? No, mum was uh, mum's born and bred in Malvern. Uh, she was working for the... Uh, US Army. When they were operating out of Australia? Mm, yes, yes, during the, during the war years. I still worried your dad or he's away? <laughs> dad was away in Labio and Amoritai in the uh, islands during the war. He saw his action. He came back with uh, dengue fever and malaria and a few other things, jungle rot, but uh, with the goodness of uh, mum being a good service wife, uh, she nursed him back to health and then we came along. <laughs> Did your father talk much about his experience in the war? Never. No, Dad didn't speak about that. In fact, he didn't speak about it at all until I basically came home on first leave after joining Navy. Um, Then he opened up to me. I don't think he really wanted to open up to his son as a civilian, but he would open up to me as um, as a military person. Uh, That was good. He could uh, he could relate to me on that level. But we related on many levels. But that was a level we uh, enjoyed relating on. Did you have any siblings? Yeah, I've got a brother who's um, three years older than me and uh, two younger sisters, uh, six years younger and uh, four years younger. And do they have any military service under their belt? None whatsoever, no. No, they didn't hear their call of their country. Did you have any family serve in World War One? Yes, I did. My uh, mother's uh, father, Frederick Patrick Thomas Bryce, he was on the uh, Western Front. He got a lung full of gas. They repatriated him back to the United Kingdom. He came good after about three or four months, and then they put him straight back on the Western Front again and knocked him around. He came back. He had his issues with alcohol right up until the Second World War when he joined the militia and uh, served Australia in the militia as well. So my granddad was... um, some might have said he was an alcoholic uh, in those days. I actually know and uh, could see why he went uh, why he went that way and, and uh, got a bit of relief, I guess, uh, in his own uh, in his own company. Was he gassed in any particular battle or just? Um, that's not clear from his war records. It just said Western Front, which is pretty horrendous area to be in. Yeah, very cold, very wet, very damp, very. Sub-Zero. He was lucky he survived. But getting sent back there after getting a, a lung full of mustard or lewisite gas must have been a hell of a hell of a thing to face. But then he joined the militia when the country called, despite all that, in 1939. Yeah, yeah. He um, he was. Uh, How old was he by then? Oh, I guess he probably would have been upwards of 40s. Too old to join active, but uh, militia was like, oh, he would have been in his 40s, I'm sure, somewhere around there. Yeah, my mother was born in 1923, so that would have brought him back, uh, yeah, into the 1800s when he was born, so yeah. And did he talk to you about any of his experiences? Never met him. Never met the man. When did he die? Don't know. He was tossed out of our family by my grandma, who was very Victorian or 
could call it Edwardian in her attitude and had no concept or idea of what her husband had been through. All she could see when he came back was that he was a drinker. She didn't know about his um, his war service. Or, uh, and it was by default that I found out later on, in, many years later. But he was uh, he was sold to us as being just a drunk and he, uh, he was kicked out of the family. But I look back on it now, that man would have been so full of post-traumatic stress disorder and worry and anxiety and he, he probably would have turned to the drink just to give him a little bit of uh, ease of the pain that a man must have seen so therefore he passed on in our family as being a drunkard but to me he passed on as being an absolute hero when was he kicked out of the family before i was born long before i was born um before world war ii or during or i think it was I think it was before World War Two, and it only came to a city, joined the militia sort of um, many, many years later on when I started to uh, track his uh, progress. But, yeah, I'd never got to know the man. I'm, all I've got is a photo of uh, a guy in a, in a great coat that was taken uh, up in Ballarat. Well, that's a tragedy, what happened to him. It would have been a, a situation that would have repeated itself a thousandfold. In those days, our guys came back and they said, oh, yeah, you got shell shock. And in the Second World War, it was weak heart. And now we're giving it a new name called PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, either way, it was a man who, uh, who'd been pretty much belted around mentally and uh, physically in, uh, in a theatre of war. You grew up with a father who had served, hearing of the stories eventually of a grandfather who had served. World War Two in the not very distant past and Korea when you're a very young age and then late emergency. The year I was born, actually Korea, 1950. With all this military cloud surrounding you, in a way, did that shape an interest in the forces at a young age or not really? No, 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 not, not at all. Um, I think maybe the first taste I got of it was uh, cadets at school. And that sort of tweaked me a little bit, but I don't think I was really interested that much in um, in army and repeating what my dad had done. In fact, I left school and uh, became an office worker with a company called 3M Company, and they were stationed where uh, the casino is now. And then what did your first interest in the military brew? Okay, yeah, that was interesting. Um, where I worked in in the city at 3M Company in South Melbourne, you get off. I get off the train in uh, Flinders Street, and I'd have to pass the uh, recruitment the recruitment shop. We could call it best. It was called Reliance House, and it was in Flinders Street uh, near the corner of Elizabeth Street. And I used to walk past there in my mundane existence, going and going to the office as a filing clerk, and always thought that life uh, life should be a bit bigger, a little bit better for me. And uh, I was drawn into the uh, the picture of the war ship for many years it just sort of sat there for as I passed on the way to work and as I went home and uh, eventually one day I thought uh, this is not what I want to do I think it was the time when the six day war was on and I was traveling on the train back home from work that night and I was reading about the six day war and uh, how Israel had sort of kicked Egypt pretty quickly and and we were in Vietnam in those days and I heard my country's call and next thing I knew I was uh, I was joining up I was uh, volunteering for the, the service in Navy never looked back Tell me about your training. Oh, that was great. You know, we're piled on the bus at Reliance House Saturday morning, and you've probably heard this story so many times. Taken down the service, you get out on there at the parade ground, and everybody's hanging out of the windows of the dormitories who had joined up the month or two months before, and they're all saying, you'll be sorry, you'll be sorry, and we're looking at each other very very uh, scared, I guess was the best word, tail between our legs, wondering what the hell we'd put ourselves into. There was 80 in my class, in my division, it was called Waller Division, uh, named after a very famous captain in the Royal Australian Navy. And um, yeah, it quietened down very, very quickly. Uh, within 24 hours, this you'll be sorry, and everybody realised, you know, we're all in the same boat. Excuse the pun, please. We're all tied with the same brush, and uh, we're all going to be doing the same thing. So it uh, 
fell into comradeship pretty quickly. You're all been thrown overboard together. Yeah, yeah, literally. That was episode two, Beginnings of Life on the Sea. Next episode, we get into confrontation and the war in Vietnam begins. Never miss an episode. www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com And join the conversation on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram at Life on the Line Podcast and on Twitter at L-O-T-L Pod. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget.